Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Um, I'm delighted to be here to set the framework and go through our global macroeconomic forecast. Um, I wanted to put this recession into context, then talk about where we are at in the COVID-19 recovery cycle, and then make a few comments on US-China relations, the state of relations, particularly with the bill that had passed in the Senate yesterday, which is getting a lot of focus in financial markets. So where are we right now in the cycle with respect to how we compared this recession to past recessions. One thing you're going to hear everybody say about this recession is that it is unprecedented. In the last 125 years, there have only been eight recessions. Um, typically, they have started from the United States. And where do we put this recession? We do see this as the worst recession since World War II, not quite matching the Great Depression, although unemployment numbers are there but worse than the global financial crisis in the United States by almost double the impact with respect to the contraction that we're seeing in the global economy. So to go through our global forecast, we are forecasting a 4.7% contraction in the global economy um, this year. And we think the United States is going to contract by about 6.5%. Turning to China and Latin America and just talking through the forecast, we have China's growth now at 1.3%. We had started the year with China um, growing 5.9%. And China's growth is very important to Latin America and to emerging markets um, in particular, because every one percentage point decline in China's growth takes about 1% off of Latin America because of the commodity linkages um, and the dependency of Latin America on China demand. So this is a major hit for Latin America. We have Latin America this year contracting by 6.7%. So we had started the year in Latin America hoping for a growth recovery, which was then crushed by the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, we had started the year at a 1.5% growth forecast for the region. We're now at negative 6.7%. The hardest hit economy is going to be Mexico, where we have growth contracting by 8.5%. Um, and you know, apart from the very tight ties to the U.S. Uh, economy, we think that there are other sources of lingering damage to the economy. The fiscal response has been more limited. Um, you know, they, they, there's been a standstill between the government and the private sector, which seems to have deepened there. And that's been depressing business sentiment in a more permanent way. Um, in Brazil, um, just to go through the largest economies in the region, we now have growth in Brazil contracting by 7%. And um, we've taken this forecast down um, a couple of times. So you also have a number of political developments in Latin America, um, which have been um, you know, um, very difficult too with respect to um, the um, signals on policy. So we've seen um, shocks from that. And we also just saw overnight in Brazil that um, the COVID-19 cases there are now approaching you know, 291,000. They're up 54% in just the last seven days. So that's a real uh, acceleration since the beginning of the week. Um, you also have seen the fatalities there go up by about 41% in the last seven days. Um, so just um, a major um, downturn that we see, you know, Argentina contracting probably about um, double digits. Now, some things that are different here is inflation you know, is not a problem. 
with um, such big output gaps, um, with talks about deflation, you know, the negative yields, um, that is not a problem. We've seen the Latin American countries um, step up and use more fiscal policy, but there have been calls that they should probably be even doing more than what we are seeing. The fiscal deficits in Latin America, we think will increase by about four percentage points of GDP in most countries. Um, and with Brazil actually doing more than that, probably closer to 7%. Um, so a number of countries were already in financial distress, Argentina and Ecuador, which were in the midst of restructuring their market debt. So um, you know, a, a real turbulent year for the region. What can China do and what are the linkages between the two countries? Well, as I mentioned, you know, China is going through its own dramatic downturn, but it is the first country that went into the COVID-19 crisis and the first country coming out. And we've actually been surprised by the China recovery and we would characterize it as V-shaped. Um, looking at the numbers that have come out of China over the last week, their retail sales were up 9%. You're actually looking at some levels that are getting closer to where they were at last December. We thought that exports would be negative and they actually had small positive 3% growth. Will China be able to help Latin America? Well, China is um, responding with an, an, an enormous amount of fiscal stimulus, um, but it's still much less than what they were able to do during the 2008 global financial crisis. They went into this crisis with a much bigger debt burden um, and a much bigger fiscal deficit. The fiscal deficit before the crisis in China was already around 11% of GDP, and we have it at 14.5% of GDP this year. So that's a big increase, but it's still about half the amount of stimulus that they had used um, during the last crisis. Um, and their ability to support um, countries, I think, is going to be limited by the increase in debt burden that we've seen in China, where we have debt, you know, um, you know around you know, 260 to 280 percent of GDP. The debt um, in China had increased by about 100% of GDP you know, since the global financial crisis. So we still do see China um, you know, working with a number of the emerging markets countries and also um, some of the developed countries with respect to the medical advances. Um, you know, as the country that was also the first into this crisis, they also have more of the you know, medical experience and, and, and equipment as well. But I would say that uh, a lot of people have asked if China's um, path out will be something that can be replicated, and we see this as highly unlikely. Uh, China is using you know, draconian measures that really do violate um, civil liberties and most democracies that just cannot be replicated. You know, they uh, have children going back to school wearing electronic monitors that have smart thermometers attached. Everybody has a QR code that scans in and tracks um, the health contact. So I don't think that the Chinese experience will be one that is replicated. Um, Latin America is still largely in lockdown mode um, right now. So when we do think about the resources that Latin America will have to draw on, I think the IMF um, you know, is going to have to play a bigger role here. Um, and um, we've already seen that um, being the case. We've seen more than 100 countries you know, approach the IMF for assistance, including a number of the countries in Latin America. So I think China's ties are, you know, enormously important to Latin America. They remain, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, very much looking at the longer term relationships, um, the commodity relationships, but I don't expect to see the kind of support that they were able to provide, just given the depth of this crisis, um, you know, as we look at um, what type of support Latin America will receive going forward. Um, so why don't I, um, you know, uh, 
why don't I uh, stop there um, and just say a few things on um, U.S.-China relationships. Uh, financial markets are watching this very closely right now. The U.S. Senate passed a bill that could disqualify many foreign companies from listing shares in the U.S. stock exchanges. And this is a bill that still needs to pass in the House of Representatives and be signed by the president, but it would require foreign companies to certify that they're not controlled or owned by um, foreign governments. And so this would have a major impact on China. Um, if you take a look at um, the um, just level of integration that we have with China right now, um, we estimate that you know, U.S. companies earn about 500 billion of annual revenue from China, 100 billion of that coming from tech. You know, all of the largest Chinese tech companies are listed in the U.S. Um, as well. So this is something that we're watching very closely right now, but we do see the U.S.-China tensions becoming more of an issue as we approach the elections. So let me stop there um, for the next speaker. Yes. Um, so, let, yeah. Let me stop there. Uh, so, uh, thank you, uh, Joyce. I, um, I will introduce uh, our next speaker, uh, Margaret Myers. Margaret uh, is the director of the Asia and Latin America program at the Inter-American Dialogue. She established the Dialogues China and Latin America Working Group in 2011 to examine China's growing presence in Latin America and the Caribbean. She also developed the China Latin America Finance Database, the only publicly available source of empirical data on Chinese state lending in Latin America. Margaret has published numerous articles on Chinese leadership dynamics, international capital flows, Chinese agriculture policy, and Asia-Latin American relations, among other topics. She is regularly featured in major domestic and international media, and she was identified by Global Americans as part of the new generation of public intellectuals. Please join me in welcoming Margaret Myers. Well, thank you so much. It's really such a, a distinct pleasure to be here, and many thanks to, to Global Minnesota for, for the kind invitation, including to all of the organizers uh, and supporters of this event. Um, it's clear, you know, at this point that uh, COVID-19 will certainly reshape China-Latin America relations in many ways. But since there are so many unknowns at the moment and the outlook is changing weekly, uh, if not daily, I'd like to, you know, with the title of this in event in mind, uh, to briefly consider whether China will indeed come to the rescue in any clear way in the Latin American and the Caribbean region in the coming months and years. Um, as it sort of did, as Joyce alluded to, you know, following the 2008 global financial crisis. Um, and also to consider some of the main factors that will either enable uh, in some cases or hinder uh, future engagement. And to answer this, I think we need to think about a few of those different factors to address them. Um, and, you know, here I, there are so many factors that are going to shape things in, in the coming um, bit, you know, in the coming months, but also many, for many years to come. Uh, these include the extent and speed of China's recovery, as Joyce mentioned, right? The nature also of China's stimulus measures and related reforms. Uh, what exactly China, Latin America's investment environment will look like when all is said and done. Uh, China's appetite for strategic investment in Latin America in the coming months. Uh, Chinese overseas finance outlook and, and its thoughts on debt relief, um, which affect you know, a very specific subset of countries in Latin America. 
And as Joyce also sort of mentioned, the effect of China's medical assistance on, on COVID-19 outcomes across the region, also on views of China across the region. So allow me um, uh, very briefly to, to touch on each of these factors uh, for just a few minutes each. Uh, so first of all, so much depends, as I noted, on, on the various stimulus measures that China has currently put in place. These are, of course, critical for China's uh, for China's own growth, uh, but also for growth of the global economy. Uh, but the companies that fare best in China's recovery, that are prioritized by China's stimulus measures, will also be among those uh, that are best positioned to invest abroad in the coming years. Uh, China, you know, very recently has indicated that it will. <laughs> rely fairly heavily on, on hard infrastructure investment. There are a number of major infrastructure projects, major public works and other projects that have been proposed just over the past few weeks, uh, big airports, uh, other new road rail, other projects of, of, of that scale. Um, but China will also be focusing on, on domestic investment in what is called new infrastructure. Uh, things like 5G deployment, smart cities development, uh, the use of a, a wider range of AI-enabled technologies, expanding automation, electricity transmission. And I think it's very likely that you know, we'll see some new national champions resulting from, um, from some of these you know, domestic investments. There are already plenty of very large companies active internationally that are doing these things, but some others will emerge from this as well. Um, and will presumably be able to take these, these innovations or this expertise abroad in the coming years. Um, it is highly likely, as has happened before, that Chinese innovations in these areas will transcend China's borders as they already have to a degree um, with a range of implications, some positive, some more challenging uh, for, for the Latin American region. Um, and on that note, you know, so much also depends on the investment environment in Latin America and the Caribbean in the aftermath of COVID-19, uh, which Joyce, you know, um, already sort of illuminated in her, in her own remarks. Uh, China has signed a record number of greenfield foreign direct investment in deals with the region in 2019, much higher than any, any other year um, over the past, I think, seven years. Um, many of them large-scale infrastructure projects, a Peruvian project in, in, in Shanghai is one of the biggest ones, but there were many others that were signed um, uh, to the tune of, uh, of about $9 billion. Um, but what metrics will Chinese companies use to, to measure the viability of proposed infrastructure and other projects um, in the coming months and years? Will uh, the investment environments in Latin America, especially for public-private partnerships, be conducive to, to, to either new investment or to the continuation of projects that are already uh, ongoing or that are being planned at the moment. Um, even if projects aren't commercially viable, um, will China see strategic opportunity in ailing sectors in the Latin American and Caribbean region, in electricity transmission in Brazil, for example, where China already has a rather sizable stake? Um, there are many other areas, too, where, where China has expressed considerable interest. Lithium and other projects have been of high priority for uh, for the Chinese government and in Chinese overseas policy toward Latin America for a number of years now. 
Um, in the past, also, China has for many years supported uh, overseas foreign direct investment for earmarked, through earmarked loans, uh, subsidies by facilitating public offerings in China uh, and overseas equity markets. Um, this is especially true of the agricultural sector. For those of you in agriculture, I think you're well aware of this, of this phenomenon. And so it is possible that China Development Bank, Exim Bank, and some other financial institutions will see some value in strategic investment, um, especially if other investors withdraw from the region. That, of course, you know, huge caveat depends on, on China's own economic outlook, on its debt burden, as, as Joyce alluded to, um, and many other factors um, within these financial institutions. On, also on the financing side, uh, there are questions as to whether Chinese credit can be counted on um, as a silver bullet to help Latin American governments manage the economic fallout of the outbreak. And, you know, while China may well provide some relief, um, especially if lending conditions tighten among other international financial institutions, um, I think it's important for us to understand that Chinese financing to the region, especially state-to-state -state financing, has actually been steadily declining for, for four years now, almost five. So even before COVID-19, even before China was grappling with this very, very difficult um, economic situation at home, we were seeing declining, you know, state-to-state -state government finance um, to the Latin American region for mostly large-scale infrastructure projects. So the likelihood of, of more huge, you know, multi-billion dollar projects financed by Chinese policy banks, I think is pretty low at this moment. Does that mean that China won't do anything to help out the region, perhaps through no interest loans, concessional lending, something of that nature, sort of foreign, what, the, China's own approach to, to sort of aid or um, overseas development assistance, perhaps. Uh, but all of this has been on the decline for a number of years now. Um, China's approach to debt relief is another really critical question. It's one that, you know, many are talking about at the moment. Um, it would have really important implications for certain countries, very specific countries in the region. Uh, you know, Argentina, Ecuador, and Venezuela still owe uh, China quite a bit of money. Um, that said, Chinese loans are a relatively small part of each country's uh, balance of payments problem, about 5% for Argentina, about 14% for Ecuador. Um, but that said, could China still step in to offer needed debt relief or at least provide some stopgap financing. Um, there is some evidence of China having provided debt relief in Africa, uh, though still very little evidence of this happening in Latin America, with the exception of some sort of restructuring that took place in Cuba and Venezuela over the past couple of decades. Um, and in Africa, you know, the types of loans that have been uh, been restructured or the type of relief that has been provided is for loans really that are no interest loans that have reached maturity and haven't been paid in full. And we don't have a lot of those kind of particular loans in the Latin American context with, with respect to China. And then finally, you know, what, what effect is China's so-called mask, uh, mask diplomacy? You know, all of these donations, sometimes sales of personal protective equipment, um, you know, donations of services even, uh, having on the region's ability to address COVID-19. Um, 
I'll say so far that China's deliveries have been, you know, really quite extensive and continuous. Um, we have tracked over 200 announcements of donations and sales of medical equipment or diagnostic services to Latin America. And these, each of these is in the thousands, right? Or thousands of masks, thousands of uh, hazmat suits, um, quite a few, not thousands of ventilators, but a lot of ventilators. Um, and these donations, these shipments really cover most countries in the region, including interestingly, interestingly some of those um, countries that are diplomatically allied with Taiwan. Um, and, that, and those include mostly, you know, donations to countries in the Northern Triangle, in Central America, and also to Paraguay. Paraguay is the only country in South America that, America that continues to maintain, maintain diplomatic ties to Taiwan. Um, rather than mainland China. And there's been some outreach even among, um, you know, industrial groups in Paraguay uh, to, to China, certain Chinese entities to request assistance from China in the midst of all of this, noting that China is the perceived expert on COVID-19 and could perhaps provide assistance that others might not. Um, Though much appreciated by recipient nations and localities, the effect of these shipments on countries' overall medical capacity, I think, is really still rather limited. It helps, absolutely, but there are already such deficiencies, especially in certain countries in Latin America, that it's not going to solve the problem. Um, but China's diplomatic outreach will, I think, at the very least, showcase China's capacity for global leadership. Um, and also highlight some of the more advanced medical and other technologies that are being developed by Chinese companies. China, Huawei, which is one of the main uh, donors of equipment, is using this opportunity not only to help communities in the Latin American and the Caribbean region, but also to, show, also to showcase some of its, its technologies, some of, especially certain AI-based diagnostic platforms, uh, with the expectation that this may help to, in fact, you know, create markets for, for these technologies um, or opportunities for engagement with Huawei uh, in the coming years. Um, anecdotally, uh, at least, I think there seems to be a real sense in the region that China uh, and not the U.S. It has effectively taken the reins in, in this global response. And certainly, you know, China's decision to contribute to the or contribute some funds um, through the WTO is a uh, or rather excuse me the World Health Organization is is yet another indication uh, I think for many international observers of China's interest in continuing uh, to support the global fight against COVID-19 and I'll, I'll leave it there there's certainly plenty plenty more to discuss and I look forward to the Q&A thank you so much thank you Margaret um, our next and final speaker today is Amy Selico, principal at Albright Stonebridge Group. Uh, before um, going on with Amy's introduction, I just want to remind our audience um, that as you are uh, listening to our speakers, please be thinking about questions. And as you formulate questions, you can submit those to the speakers through the chat function on, um, on the Zoom page and uh, and then we can go through those at the end of our uh, presentation. Um, Amy leads the firm's China team at uh, Stonebridge Group. Uh, drawing on more than 20 years of experience on issues in the region, Amy develops and implements 
tailored strategies for clients helping them deepen relationships with key stakeholders, succeed with M&A transactions, resolve complex problems, and build and expand uh, their businesses. Prior to joining the firm, uh, Amy served as Senior Director for China Affairs at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, where she was responsible for developing negotiating positions on issues relating to China's non-financial services sectors and intellectual property rights policies. She was also involved in developing trade policy uh, positions for bilateral discussions with China through the Strategic Economic Dialogue and the U.S.-China Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade. Uh, she also served um, at the, uh, as Deputy Director of the Office of uh, the Chinese Economic Area at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Uh, as with our other speakers, Amy is a frequent media guest on China-U.S. policy. Um, Amy earned her B.A. with honors in Asian Studies from Mount Holyoke College and completed her M.A. studies in International Economics and Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Welcome, uh, Amy. Thank you so much, uh, Pat, and thanks so much to Mark and uh, Global Minnesota for including me in this panel. It's, um, as you just heard from Pat, my perspective looking at China is very much focused on US-China relations. And so following up on what we've already heard from uh, Joyce and from Margaret, I thought my perspective would be um, really focused on how the deterioration in U.S.-China relations is impacting uh, China's uh, stance towards Latin America. Um, and so I thought I'd just start by talking about the increase in tensions between the United States and China because it is having such a significant global impact right now. Um, COVID-19 should have been uh, an opportunity for the United States and China to stop the bleeding, to actually uh, improve relations, relations that had seen significant tensions rise over political trade and investment issues. And I'll, mm -hmm. I'll talk about um, some of them. But in fact, as we all know, and I think uh, as Margaret just very succinctly explained, um, U.S.-China tensions about COVID-19 are not just increasing the deterioration of U.S.-China relations, but also playing out on the global stage um, as the U.S. and China are seen as competing in other markets, including Latin America. Um, I think that um, four months ago, uh, when we were already looking at um, record lows in Chinese investment into the United States, uh, as well as increasing tensions over political issues around Hong Kong, Taiwan, Chinese uh, listings on, uh, on our stock exchanges, as Joyce just mentioned, there's legislation pending there. We had a whole host of issues that were really harming U.S.-China relations. And um, from my perspective, uh, the American companies that we serve in the China market were very concerned about the potential for those tensions to then impact their presence on the ground in China. And uh, in fact, it, they increasingly are doing just that. 
So prior to COVID-19, we were already seeing stable amounts of U.S. investment in China over the past few years, but a real nosedive, of course, in investment from China to the United States. Um, I have my statistics here of this 88% decrease in inbound investment from China. 2016 was a real high, $46.5 billion in Chinese investment into the United States. Last year, that was down to $5 billion. And in 2020, in the first four months of 2020, it's been around $200 million worth of investment in the United States. Clearly, there are opportunities uh, for Latin American nations to reap uh, the benefits of that, because as Chinese investors see more and more hurdles to investment in the United States, they are looking at uh, other markets. And as Margaret and Joyce both explained, have been increasing uh, investments in uh, Latin America. But COVID-19 really is changing uh, the perspective of US-China relations significantly. I think, again, four months ago, I would have said, we're facing a trade war, we have so many challenges. The uh, US-China strategic relationship is almost at a standstill. There is only competition, zero cooperation, despite the fact that there are many issues on which we should be cooperating and, and working together. For example, nonproliferation, uh, North Korea hotspot is just one issue. Um, but in fact, that has changed significantly because of COVID-19, where um, the Chinese media is uh, making ad hominem attacks on the Secretary of State. And so I apologize for the background noise. That's a construction project that just started 15 minutes ago outside my house. Um, but these, these tensions in the political relationships spill over into every aspect of US-China relations. And, and COVID-19 has solidified this sense in the United States and in China that there's mistrust and that there are malign intentions of the government on the other country. So we've seen in uh, the Pew Foundation just did a survey, found that two thirds of Americans now have negative views about China and that is significantly higher than before. We look in China at uh, social media, WeChat, um, there's increasing amounts of calls for the Chinese government to retaliate against U.S. companies in China for the actions that the U.S. government is taking against, for example, Huawei, restricting their access in the U.S. market, trying to restrict American technology from going to Huawei through export controls, and of course, trying to impact the ability of Huawei to bid on uh, telecommunications infrastructure development in Brazil, across Latin America, and across, and of course, around the world. We have not seen Chinese retaliation yet, um, but we are poised to see that kind of targeted retaliation against American companies. Um, the one area of, um, the one area where the United States and China continue to cooperate is on um, this very, very limited phase one trade agreement that the US and China uh, finalized in January and which came into effect in February. Much of this phase one trade agreement is focused on purchase China made a commitment 
to increase purchases of American products uh, by $200 billion over the next two years. And just to put that in context, that means that China needs to buy $64 billion more in products from the United States by the end of this year than it did in all of 2017. And of course, this is where COVID-19 is having a significant impact on the ability of the US and China to live up to those commitments. I was just on a telephone call with some former Chinese government officials who specifically pointed to um, the issue of commodity prices being so much lower in Brazil and in other countries than in the United States. Purchasing soybeans would cost 25% less were uh, China to purchase them from Brazil, but the political pressure on trade officials in Beijing is to continue to buy American products because this US-China phase one agreement is the only area where the United States and China continue to cooperate today. That cooperation is halting uh, and it's not terribly ambitious, but on some market access and some um, purchase commitments, the Chinese government is very serious about living up uh, to these commitments because one, it's the only factor that is continuing to stabilize US-China relations, and two, because very distinct from a year ago now, um, there is a recognition in Beijing that the Chinese government needs foreign investment to help, as Joyce explained, China to achieve this V-shaped recovery after COVID-19 so decimated the economy in Q1. And so right now, China just uh, kicked off its annual legislative uh, meetings, postponed from early March to the end of this week and early next week. And already we have heard from um, the premier of China, as well as other senior officials in China, that the Chinese government wants to continue to attract foreign investment as part of its overall strategy to continue to stimulate the economy. They do not want to repeat what they did in 2009 with a massive stimulus uh, project that ended up in a, in a pretty major uh, debt overhang for the Chinese government, which has become a political issue for them. I just want to end by talking about the political relationship between the United States and China. As Margaret said, um, I think it is fair to say that many countries in Latin America have seen China's mass diplomacy in a positive and negative way. Um, uh, obviously, the PPE donations, the fact that China's been very aggressive and assertive in trying to demonstrate assistance for many countries in Latin America is a positive. I think um, that uh, the negative is that it is very much seen in competition with the United States. And as, as Margaret already, already said, uh, I think a lot of countries are seeing the United States hasn't stepped up during the COVID-19 crisis to demonstrate support in Latin America. Just chatting with my own colleagues in Albright-Stonebridge Group's America's Practice, there are views among um, a few different governments that the United States, of course, actively cut off the ability of PPE to go to those countries so that the United States could ensure its supply. And so the long-term impact of COVID-19 on both China's relationships in Latin America 
and American US relationships in Latin America. I think that story is still to be told. Um, but I will say these continued tensions and the prospect for more tensions, like Joyce said, in this very political season in the United States in the lead up to the November elections, does mean that there are going to be more rather than fewer tensions in the relationship uh, going forward until November. And regardless of whether President Trump or Vice President Biden is elected in, in November, uh, we're going to continue to see those tensions in 2021 and beyond. I'll stop there, Pat. Thank you very much. I uh, want to uh, thank Margaret and Joyce as well. Uh, for the next 15 minutes, uh, we're going to entertain some questions and have some discussion um, uh, concerning questions from the audience. Um, we do have a hard stop at nine o'clock, so forgive me if I uh, uh, push us to stop at that time, but uh, we do have a limited amount of time. The first question uh, that was posed uh, by the audience was, where does Cuba fit into China's Latin America strategy? Um, I'm not sure <clears throat> um, who, uh, who's best to answer that question. Maybe, uh, Margaret, you want to start? Sure, happy to do so. Yeah, I mean, Cuba is a, a bit of an outlier, of course, in the broader China, Latin America, and Caribbean relationship. Um, it's a very special, you know, uh, historical relationship uh, based on, on political ties, and not necessarily on, on economic ties. Um, although there is plenty of trade, mostly in sugar, right? And also, uh, you know, Cuba is, is a country that uh, I, I wouldn't say imports, but invites, you know, about 500 Chinese a year to learn Spanish um, and to be, um, uh, to have classes on, on Cuba and also on the rest of the, the Latin American region. So it's a very important training ground for future Chinese diplomats. Um, Right now, I mean, it's a really unique relationship also because Cuba is one of the few countries that continues to receive financial assistance from China, but without much of an expectation for repayment. Um, Cuba uh, was one country, I believe it was, gosh, what was it, 15 years ago now, where there was a, a sort of concerted effort to, um, to restructure Cuba's debt. Um, and that uh, China participated in that, albeit on its own terms, um, and did so. Uh, they sort of extended the life of, of some of Cuba's loans. Uh, but then ever since, uh, we haven't really seen any repayment of any more loans, uh, Chinese loans from Cuba to, to China. Um, and it's just been something, I guess, that the, the, that the Chinese government officials have accepted. Uh, been willing to tolerate. Uh, that said, I will say that, um, you know, companies, just anecdotally speaking, operate, Chinese companies operating in Cuba have expressed considerable frustration about the operating environment there, about delays in payment, uh, if being paid at all. Um, and so it's not really a country, despite all of these strong historical and political ties, where China feels it's advantageous necessarily to do business from from a you know economic perspective, um, and noting that it's not going to be easy to to be paid back, and sometimes the labor conditions are are, are such that it's difficult to to just make things happen. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. I don't know if anyone else has any commentary on that particular relationship. Okay, thank you, Margaret. Um, next question: What about Taiwan? Um, as you've some of you have alluded to, a lot of the uh, aid to Latin America 
or the loans uh, from China to Latin America seem to be uh, tied to uh, whether overtly or um, as a matter of, of fact to uh, recognition that uh, Taiwan is part of China. Um, what about Taiwan? Do they have any hope of uh, um, countering Chinese political and e economic moves against them in Latin America? Um, who would like to take that question on? I'm happy to, also okay. to, to comment on that as well, uh, unless anyone else would like to, to go first. But um, yeah, I mean, so the loans that China gives to Latin America are given for a wide variety of different reasons and aren't necessarily tied to, to, to Chinese recognition, although, um, you know, the, the, the one-child policy features prominently in China's, uh, you know, foreign policy toward the Latin American and Caribbean region. Um, but yes, what China has done is, you know, in exchange for the decision to cut ties with Taiwan, China has offered certain uh, projects that are sometimes financed by Chinese banks, um, even, uh, you know, donations, donations of stadiums and things of this sort. Um, and other uh, sorts of technical cooperation agreements, and then even you know helping uh, certain countries to access the Chinese market by reducing certain phyto phytosanitary protocols and other things that have been impediments to to entry in the past. So there are a lot of sort of incentives, right, for for Latin American countries, and the remaining. You know, Chinese uh, or Taiwanese allies are mostly in Central America, the Caribbean, and then, as I mentioned before, Paraguay. Um, and so there are incentives, and there's been discussion in all of these countries about the advantages of switching, right? Whether it's worthwhile to do so, whether Taiwanese aid assistance is enough to to justify continued, uh, you know, allegiance to, to Taiwan over mainland China. Um, and some have decided that, it, you know, really it makes a lot more sense to partner with, with China, to, to recognize China diplomatically. And most recently we've seen three really important switches, uh, Panama, uh, Dominican Republic, and also El Salvador. And there was a really rather strong reaction from the United States to that. I do think we would see a, a sort of domino effect across the entire region at this point in time, were it not for um, US pressure. Uh, on especially in countries in the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, for example, Honduras, others to maintain ties with Taiwan. And there is this sort of uh, link, right? Or it's not, I don't know how explicitly it's been said, probably fairly explicitly, right? That if you do cut ties with Taiwan, you may, our U.S. aid may not be forthcoming, right, to you. And there may be some punitive measures with respect to, uh, to immigration policy as well. So that is one, I, you know, one, um, I think, major impediment at this point to, to making any decision to, to align more, more closely with China. Thank you, Margaret. Um, Joyce, a question for you. What does the data say with regard to when it can be said with some confidence that the economic recession is not extended to a depression, what particular macroeconomic factors are the best indicators for trade? Uh, that's a great question. And, and I sort of saw a, another related one that was about stakeholder capitalism. So I'll try to address that as well. So look, um, people have asked me, um, is this going to be a V-shaped recovery um, in the U.S.? And my answer is that the V is for very unlikely. 
Um, <laughs> it is a V-shaped recovery in China at enormous cost, and China is going to put itself first. Um, now, you will see on a quarterly basis, if you just look at GDP growth numbers, that something that does look V-shaped. Um, we have the U.S. economy you know, going down in the second quarter of this year right now, 40%. It will come back 22%. So down hard, you know, up, and then 14% in the fourth quarter. But I caution everybody that GDP is not the key metric I would look at because you cannot measure it in units. So I look at employment and I look at the balance sheet costs. So let's just talk about those two things. So, you know, we had um, unemployment at a 50-year low at 3.5%. Um, it was reported, you know, at close to 15%, so more than an 11 percentage point increase up, but that is underreported because you had another 6 million jobs that were listed as employed but not working. So we think that your unemployment rate could have hit around 23%. In the United States. So this is far past the Great Depression, which is again why the GDP number isn't as bad as the Great Depression. But if you look at the cumulative income lost and the cost of the balance sheet, you're, you're going you know, really beyond the Great Depression in, in some ways. Um, so we think that unemployment still will be double digit at the end of this year, uh, around 10%. Um, and, you know, with so many of the jobs in the services sector, it's going to take a long time to come back. The second thing we look at is the increase to the public sector debt burden and also the private sector debt burden. So just to go through um, a few numbers, the um, public sector debt, we think, will go up by 15 to 20 percent of GDP um, and break that down just sort of roughly a third because of the size of the fiscal. You know, we are looking at a 12 percent of GDP fiscal deficit. So the biggest fiscal deficit that we've had um, without a war. Um, a third of that will come from contingent liabilities, and a third will come from lower growth. And this is just the question you have, where is, what is growth going to look like, you know, sort of, you know, after all of this, when you're working through this type of debt and fiscal burden? We still have the fiscal deficit at 10% of GDP next year. So, you know, it, it is, um, it, 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 now, now what is very different this time is the policy response. Um, you know, the Fed has thrown in the full artillery here. They had the toolkit from the 2008 crisis and they've done more. So they've done Fed 2.0, which is going from quantitative to credit easing. The big question mark is Fed 3.0, which is going to small and medium enterprises, the Main Street Lending Program. And the Fed is just not really set up to do this. I mean, if you wanted to host a seminar on where the equilibrium interest rate is, the Fed is set up for that, but they're really not set up to lend to small and medium enterprises. And that's $600 billion to the Main Street lending, where there are still real question marks on whether this is going to get to the people who need it the most for the small and medium um, enterprises. So I think the way I would say the B is for very unlikely is it's not just the headline GDP number. What we're trying to measure is um, what is the hit to the economy at the end of 2021? And here at the end of 2021, so not the end of this year, we still think that you're going to be about 4% of GDP below the pre-pandemic levels. So um, that, that, that is the cumulative um, income and, and balance sheet lost um, that we're looking at. Now, how is this going to change corporate behavior? Um, we just came out with our annual um, ESG report, our sustainability report on Monday, which um, I, I will send over to, to Stuart and, and um, Peter and others, um, and it can be shared with all of you. But I do think you're moving to a period that is going to emphasize um, stakeholder capitalism over shareholder primacy.
um, I think that is one of the fallouts of this crisis is that there's going to be less attention on the E, the environmental part of it, the climate change, and more on the S, the social part and the governance part, um, and what you need to do for workers, um, clients, and, and the community. And this had really started um, last year, you know, when Jamie Dimon had been running the Business Roundtable, when they came out with the statement saying that you really had to move to more of a stakeholder, um, you know, primacy and away from the shareholder. Um, so, you know, the Business Roundtable, um, you know, represents, you know, about 40% of the corporate tax revenues that are paid. And so these kinds of statements are coming out, you know, I think, you know, across the board for many of the large corporations now. And I think it is going to be a renewed focus away from some of the climate change, um, you know, initiatives that we had heard about and more to the social and the governance, the S and the G components of ESG. Joyce, thank you. Um, a question for you, Amy. Uh, has the current administration's approach to trade given China an advantage in Latin America? And how might the situation be different if we had passed the TPP or if we'd stayed uh, in those uh, negotiations? Um, I think it is uh, very, very true that the Chinese are trying to, the Chinese government is trying to take advantage of the United States, in some ways receding from leadership on, on trade issues, on a lot of uh, global cooperation on economic matters um, in favor of pursuing bilateral agreements and, and, um, and uh, stonewalling some activity at the WTO. And so the Chinese are certainly trying very hard. And we just heard from the Chinese government this past week that their regional cooperation agreement, the competition to TPP that ASEAN had first initiated more than a decade ago is nearing completion. They hope by the end of 2020, now that they, India has dropped out of this multilateral trade agreement because they weren't willing to um, agree with other stakeholders. And so China is trying to compete positively given the fact that the United States hasn't been as strong a player in that sense. So had we joined TPP, or we, we still can, CPTPP certainly has left the door open for the United States uh, to continue uh, to move towards entering or re-entering if, um, if either uh, the second administration, Trump administration, or our Vice President Biden in a Biden administration so chooses to. I will say, you know, and this is my, this is my view, yes, um, it has hurt the United States not to have uh, TPP as a community of, of, of partners on trade and, and investment flows. And so I would hope that the administration would think that way because there are political consequences to us going it alone. And again, I think Margaret and Joyce mentioned this, some of the um, trade policies and investment restrictions that the U.S. government in this administration has put in place have alienated not just China, but our closest allies. Uh, and so thinking about returning to more multilateral um, ways to compete more effectively with China, I think is the way that we should be focused going forward. And so I think you will hear probably not a lot about that in the campaign. It's um, it's a little too in the weeds, but I do think in 2021, as we're grappling with the economic consequences of COVID-19, I think there could be a return to that. Sure. Um, just before we continue, um, 
we are, we've got a lot of questions and our speakers have graciously uh, agreed to stay with us for a little longer. So I'm gonna ask a few more questions um, for the audience if you have to drop. Um, thank you for uh, participating and, and listening in today. And uh, we will continue here for uh, the next uh, several minutes. I think the next question um, might also uh, start with you, Amy, but uh, I'll ask for input from our other speakers as well. Um, this one says, I'm in, in my business, which is soybean processing plants. We see Chinese products being much, much, much more competitive in quality, performance, and prices compared to what they were in the past. They are entering Brazil and Argentina, and we don't see how to stop this trend. Is this something you see in other business segments as well? And I, I have a comment on this as well. When, I, when I've been meeting with clients in Brazil and Mexico and Colombia and other places in Latin America, one of the key complaints has always been um, that coming uh, in with Chinese um, aid or loans, there seems to be a flood of, of Chinese products. And in the past, those products have tended to be not very high quality and have replaced uh, you know, local goods. So, um, so I'm, I'm curious uh, what, what you all think about this question. Uh, I'm happy to kick it off. Um, indeed, we are seeing that happening in many sectors um, where there has been an improvement in the quality of, um, of Chinese investments as far as the products that they're bringing with them. Very distinct, like you said, Pat, from the past, where Chinese products couldn't necessarily compete other than in price, uh, maybe a little bit cheaper. Um, but that is, uh, that is no longer true. There are higher quality products, product categories, soybean processing, I absolutely am seeing that trend, um, and as well as other sectors, transportation, telecommunications, a lot of the uh, infrastructure projects that Margaret uh, mentioned where China gets a lot of support from the government. So its industry, whether they're state-owned enterprises or private companies, have access to a lot of capital to try to move up the value chain and provide higher quality products, not just for the China market, but for the global stage, or for the global markets. And so I think we are going to continue to see that trend. I will say this is one of the fundamental issues that the US government and other governments want to deal with in phase two trade negotiations with the Chinese. And that is the impact of state-owned enterprises on fair trade um, issues uh, across a whole host of different sectors. And the impact of SOEs really does make um, state-owned enterprises and government support for state-owned and private enterprises, the use of subsidies, does distort global markets significantly in China's favor. I'll leave it with that and, and let Margaret step in. Margaret, I think that was a, a really, yeah, no, I think that was, I mean, that was an excellent, uh, excellent comment. And I, I agree with everything that, that Amy says. And this is, I mean, this is happening across the board. One, um, you know, one industry that really strikes me is electricity transmission in Brazil, where really there's no competition and they're bringing ultra high voltage lines, which are essentially developed in China uh, to reach that over, you know, to reach from the east to the, to, to the western um, 
autonomous regions. And so, you know, this is, it's, it's a really, really challenging thing. They're receiving support uh, from the government, specifically from some of these, these policy banks that, that are designed to support overseas uh, investment, also mergers, strategic mergers and acquisitions and all sorts of other things. And so it's very, very challenging to do. What we do see is something of an impediment, especially in the agricultural sector, is local legislation. Um, in the case of Brazil, I'm thinking of, you know, of the, the agricultural investment law, which was designed, I mean, this is a bit old now, right? I think it was 2010 that it was passed, right? It was designed to prevent um, investment in, in land, uh, foreign investment in land, um, and has since, I think, been revised to prevent state-owned enterprise investment in land. Some of those soy processing plants were associated with the purchase or lease of land as a sort of sweetener, right, for the, for the, um, for the deal. Uh, but yeah, I don't really know where that law stands at this point, but there, is, there are fluctuations that we see in the political economy in some of these countries that do prevent or at least delay some of China's, um, that are aimed at China, right, with a real fear that China is sort of taking over in certain sectors. Um, that that uh, do prevent some some of these deals from happening. But overall, as Amy mentioned, I mean, there's a real advantage, and it's coming from a lot of different places. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I can um, add in my thoughts as well. Um, you know, we came out with a report last year um, called "Made in China 2025: A New World Order?" Question mark. And um, we looked at 18 sectors of the economy and where we thought that China would develop self-sufficiency, where we thought they had true global dominance, and where we we thought they were in decline. So here are the three sectors where we think that China really can achieve global dominance. Um, the first is artificial intelligence. Um, and this is because China does have to deal with the privacy issues. They have the world's biggest database and just what they have done. And you can see that really playing out in COVID-19 on the biometrics, the face recognition, you, the containment measures is really sort of in a completely different place than what any democracy um, you can do. And part of it is just that Chinese ability, much as they did with exports, they can just roll it out in mass production. So their ability to sort of do the consumer interface and roll it out in mass production, it's really hard to compare that to anywhere else uh, um, in the world and they control all of the data. So AI is one area of global dominance. The second area of global dominance we see is automation. Um, and this is partly due to necessity. Um, if you look at China's demographics, the median age in China will rise by 11 years between now and 2050. Um, the global average is six years. And in the United States, it's only four years. So the automation has been one way in which they really need to address, um, you know, just the, the, the working age labor force. And many of the things that drove China's growth, I mean, China is not invincible. They're in decline right now. Um, you know, the working age population, you know, you know the, 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 the globalization and the trade, these are things that are in decline right now. And the third area where we actually do see that they have actually, you know, just made bigger strides also because of need is actually on a lot of the um, environmental issues like the electrical vehicles because the pollution problem is so bad. That is a real public opinion problem in China right now. The pollution, you know, that's come down with containment, but you know, on things like electrical vehicles and adaptation to electrical vehicles, whereas, you know, that's one to two percent in developed countries. I mean, you can see in China that they're getting to like sort of, you know, numbers that will be in the 20 to 25 percent because of the pollution. Otherwise, we see much more that their strategy is self-sufficiency. And I think 
what the market's going to focus on is semiconductors because China is still very dependent on the U.S. for semiconductors. And that's why all of the measures that we've seen announced since late April um, and May have really um, focused on um, this area. So if you take a look at China's semiconductor consumption, they consume about 45% of semiconductors. They really need this um, for their end products, for the tablets and the smartphones. So much of the global assembly of, um, you know, is, is done, you know, in China of those products. Um, and if you actually take a look at the numbers, they import more in semiconductors than in oil in China. So, um, you know, that's one area where they, I think, very much are trying to strive for self-sufficiency. And this is kind of at the heart, which, uh, um, which Amy can talk about, of the U.S.-China strategic, um, you know, tensions. And we saw that the Department of Commerce has extended for another 90 days that companies um, you know, still have the exemption on Huawei, but they've said that's the final exemption. So that's an area that's going to be watched very closely. Areas where we think that China is more in decline, traditional auto vehicles, um, you know, we don't think they can get a monopoly like on air, you know, a lot of the air, um, airline industry, which is, you know, organized and sort of, you know, different monopolies already. But we think that in most places, it's a story more about self-sufficiency rather than global dominance. But in certain areas, the dominance in China does stand out, and we're seeing that play out in this crisis. It's, it's interesting that you mention uh, semiconductors because Taiwan, a uh, Taiwan company has just opened a, or is making plans to open in a Arizona. large uh, semiconductor plant here in the United States. So mm -hmm. um, that, will, that will be an interesting influence in that market. Um, I wanted to ask a question, perhaps uh, um, many of our members are business people, and this question seems to be a practical question. How would you advise a private U.S. construction or design firm competing against Chinese state-owned companies in bids on large infrastructure projects? And I guess maybe a, maybe a, a variation on that theme is um, we've seen um, countries trying to not necessarily block, but make it more difficult for Chinese state-owned companies to, to make bids or to do business. Uh, and so there's more investment from uh, private Chinese companies. And, and my question on that, as you're answering this question, is, is there really any difference? Um, you know, is that a, is that a practical um, uh, difference in, in terms of who's investing? Um, who would like to take on that question? Amy, do you do you want to approach that? Um, sure, I'll take a first swing at it. I will say that, yes, that that um, the challenge, and I'll, I'll focus it, I guess, on Latin America, right? If um, you're a U.S. firm competing against Chinese bids in Latin America, the challenge is exactly what you said um, just now, Pat. It's not just you're competing against state-owned enterprises who have the full weight of the government behind them to help them with financing and development of technology and, of course, cost of, it, uh, of a project. Private companies in China have that kind of access. I, I hasten to, to point out that Huawei is a private company in, in China. It is employee-owned. Uh, but as we all know, one of the reasons that Huawei has become so globally dominant is because it has had access to capital and support from the Chinese government. And so I think Margaret really answered this in the last question, that some states in Latin America, and I hasten to add the United States, are trying to take legislative and regulatory action to limit the ability 
of Chinese players to um, compete in certain sectors of the economy. Um, just last week, we saw a new executive order restricting uh, strategic adversaries from investing in the US power grid. And of course, they're talking about China. Um, but we're going to see more and more executive orders, legislation in the United States. And as Margaret said, I think for Latin American states, they have more of a political balancing act here because the question is, if they don't, um, if they don't accept a Chinese bid because they want an American bid, what do they get in return? Are our American companies really able to give enough reassurance and benefits to, um, to countries in Latin America that their bids are better than a Chinese bid? They need that support from local governments to maybe shield some of the unfair Chinese competition. But beyond that, of course, um, the challenge is, uh, is this what these governments and, and, econ and economies need American uh, investment in? Thank you. Yeah. I'll just Margaret? add to that if there's time. Yeah, just very quickly, you know, just to, um, you know, to agree with with Amy on this, that it's 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 getting increasingly challenging. Not only because there's not necessarily an even playing field, right? That that a lot of these companies are receiving private or or, or state owned, right? Are receiving support from from the government, um, but but also because they're getting more adept at operating in mm -hmm. in Latin America, right? They've been there for a couple of months, of decades now. They understand operating environments in certain countries. They have very strong networks. Um, this isn't the case, of course, for all Chinese companies, but for many of the major operators, this is indeed the case. We see a lot of now public-private partnerships where we didn't before. Uh, I don't, you know, those could, it still remains to be seen how well those will all go, right? But we see, that particular platform being used quite a bit, um, and including international ones, right? So a Canadian firm partnering with a Chinese firm. Um, and so in a growing internationalization of the way in which China engages uh, the region as well. So looking more like what US companies and other companies across the world are doing. So that makes the competition even more difficult and it much, much more difficult to sort of to determine how and how and how much better, right? A US company might do than a Chinese company in whatever particular area. What is critical is ensuring that there are regulations in place, that there are practices in place to ensure accountability, right, for projects, uh, to ensure open, transparent procurement processes to make sure that deals are not being negotiated behind closed doors because a country cut ties with Taiwan or because there's a leader in place that is willing to do this sort of government to government negotiations. That's when we see projects negotiated that really aren't fair for, you know, in terms of broader competition, but also have negative consequences occasionally for for local populations. Um, so it's really critical that, that that be the case. And I, I think there are a lot of institutions, both in the US and, and internationally, that are trying to work with countries in Latin America and elsewhere to ensure that, in fact, these sort of open procurement processes, accountability mechanisms, strong institutions are in place to make to ensure best outcomes. And, uh, and hopefully that will be good for all companies that are that are that are trying to invest in, in the region. I think it's interesting that China has started their uh, activities in Latin America going into com uh, countries that seem to have the lowest transparency um, uh, levels and, uh, and 
perhaps their initial uh, um, entry into the countries was was more political than economic. As we've said, their investments haven't really panned out that well, except perhaps they're um, you know they're seeking um, raw materials. But we've got um, a lot of other questions. I think uh, I think we're out of time.